welcome back to Computer History. I'm Chris Garcia. Today, we move beyond the prehistory of computing to what I'm calling the electromechanical age. But there's also going to be a lot of talk about the analog computing side as well. And it really doesn't start any more important than with the idea of the differential analyzer. Solving differential equations is not an easy thing to do by hand. You can do it. A lot of people have for centuries. But it turns out that it is relatively easy to do via integration using various mechanisms to perform the integration. And this is one of the first real complex mechanical devices to solve computational issues. It's massive sometimes, and it's a big step forward. And they couldn't add. That's the interesting thing. It was very specifically driven to solve this one type of problem. So you, you couldn't add, but you could multiply, which is just a form of integration, honestly. So really, the first important devices that solved differential equations were built in the 1830s. Gaspard Gustave Coriolis designed a mechanical device that could integrate differential equations of the first order, at least according to Wikipedia. What's fascinating is that it wasn't really until the 1870s that we started to see really important work done with differential analyzers. In this case, by a dude named James Thompson. Now, first he published a description of a device which could integrate differential equations of any order, which is huge. And he happened to have a pretty well-known brother, Lord Kelvin. And they published more descriptions and so forth, and they really got on board getting his, his little bro uh, into the world of scientific notice. And Kelvin built a tide-predicting machine in the early seven, 1870s. And what's fascinating is that this was also one of the first uses of integration of a computing device into a military use because it was incorporated into a fire control system for the naval gunnery. What? That's gigantic. And that was in about, that was in the early 1900s, probably 1912. And there were various other forms of this that were invented throughout the history of, of computing. And in particular, three really deserve some note. One was built between 1928 and 1931 by Harold Lockhausen and Vannevar Bush. Now, Bush is one of the major figures in the history of computing, and we'll be talking about him off and on throughout the series. And MIT really was the lead in mechanical computation in the earliest parts of its history, really. They were doing all sorts of fun little integration-type stuff. But this one was a practical general-purpose differential analyzer. And Bush actually described it as a continuous integraph, which 
I don't know what it means, but it sounds good. But he definitely described it as a differential analyzer. And he used many of the same theories as Kelvin had done. In fact, Bush said he was unaware of Kelvin's work until the first differentializer was in use, which is an interesting note. A lot of people didn't know that they were treading the same path as other people had. Part of that is because you didn't have easy ways of getting that sort of information. Now, granular information is much easier to find because we have the internet. And even in the 40s and 50s, when there was no internet, scientific publication, and in particular bibliographers, were much, much better about documenting things that had come in the past so that current researchers could look back. That one was a huge, major step, and a big one too, also. It influenced a guy named Douglas Hartree, and he was at Manchester University. And he used the design, working with a student named Arthur Porter, in 1934. And they did a proof of concept, which is the right way to go. And then they made a full-scale differential analyzer. And that was operational by March 1935. And it's said that it's the first machine of its type operational outside of the United States. I can't back that up. I'm almost certain it was. But there was lots of work being done in this area in Germany as well. And we're not as clear as what was being done in France, which also had very, very important work being done in mechanization of calculation. So there may have been things that sort of skirted the line, but this is definitely the first ancestor of the Bush design that we know of outside of the U.S. And over the next few years, up until 1939, which is really Europe's changing point, they delivered several of these. There was one in uh, Queen's University, Belfast. There was one at the Royal Aircraft Establishment. There was one at Cambridge. There was a number of them. They say five. I believe there were seven or eight. But the last few may not have been fully operational by the time the war started and may have been shuttered. Hard to say. There were also a few built in Norway in 1938, which had 12 integrators, which was far more than any other machine at that point. I think five and six were the typical number. But most importantly, I think, in the U.S., there were three very significant differential analyzers built after the Bush, and they used similar techniques. Some branched off a little bit, but they were really just treading pretty well-known ground. One was at Ballistic Research Laboratory in Maryland. That was a key one, largely because it showed that computation and particularly mechanical computation and electromechanical computation was going to be a major part of what Ballistic Research Lab was going to be doing down the future. And that definitely pops up once World War II happens. Speaking of World War II and computation, the Moore School of Electrical Engineering at the University of Pennsylvania in the early 1940s had one. It was used to create artillery firing tables. And that's a very important thing that will be a massive influence about four or five episodes away. The understanding that you needed to calculate firing tables and to solve the equations 
required for them was a major part of why electron mechanical and electronic computation came about. There was also the one that I consider the most important, though it happened after World War II, was General Electric created a differential analyzer at University of California, Los Angeles, which they called the UCLA Differential Analyzer. One of the reasons why I think this one is so important, it is one of the best documented. The Bush Differential Analyzer at MIT definitely is well documented, but it's more difficult to sort of suss out it's the importance of it beyond just the number crunching. The UCLA Differential Analyzer, on the other hand, had a lot of footage and descriptions done of it. Actually, a full newsreel section still exists. I believe it's in the collection at UCLA's uh, Movie Tone News collection. They called it the DA, and it most importantly appeared in When Worlds Collide, a science fiction film which, phenomenal, it's just great. I love it. There were other ones. Uh, Osaka University, of course, built one uh, during the war, oddly enough, which I would not have expected. Canada had one at the University of Toronto, but they're not sure if it was ever used. There were a couple others, including one that may have been used in the development of the bouncing bomb. Now, that's sort of key because that shows Manchester again. And Manchester would become a major player in the early history of electronic computing. Now, this was, of course, not elect... This was electromechanical, but analog. And we did get an electronic version in the early 1940s by a guy named Samuel H. Caldwell. But what we believe is that it was never completed. It was maybe just a description and maybe some demonstration parts. Largely because the electronic computer was looming and everyone knew that was what was going to happen. One of the reasons why differential analyzers are so important is because of Bush. And he hired a research assistant, a 26-year-old gentleman by the name of Claude Shannon. And Claude Shannon would change just about everything. Claude Elwood Shannon was one of the most important figures in the history of computing theory. And he is sometimes called the father of information theory. He was not only a mathematician, but also a cryptographer, also a juggler, and all around an incredibly fun guy to be around. <laughs> he did a lot of work during World War II, which was important, but what he really did as a 21-year-old at MIT was he described how you could use electromechanical and electrical circuits to apply Boolean algebra to all sorts of things. In essence, how to be do representational digital work. And he was describing mostly, he was describing mostly the mathematical theory of communication uh, with symbolic analysis of relay and switching circuits, which was his most important work. And it came out of his dissertation. By the way, an interesting note, 
and we'll be talking about him a lot later, but one of the important things that he is known for was he was an excellent advisor for doctoral students while he was at MIT because he was there for a long time, including three figures we'll be talking about later, Danny Hillis, who we'll talk about in supercomputing, and Ivan and Bert Sutherland, the brothers who were absolutely among the peak figures in the early history of computer graphics. So in 1936, when he was working on the differential analyzer, he was only 20 at that point, actually. He realized a few things that he could do. And one was he designed a switching circuit, which was based on Boolean logic. And as he wrote his thesis, which is a symbolic analysis of relay and switching circuits, he realized that using switching circuits, you could simplify the arrangement of relays. And now, of course, the application of this was for phone networks. But he actually designed and created a diagram for a four-bit adder. Once you have that, the implications are gigantic. One, it's showing that the use of electrical and electromechanical devices to do mathematics, we knew it was probably possible, but here is an application of it provable. But it wasn't Shannon alone who made this massive, important discovery and brought it to the world. It took others to actually get that out. At Bell Labs, there was a fella named George Stibitz. And Stibitz, much like Shannon, was kind of a character. He also could venture into honorary cuss territory, as his letters would reveal, and I got to read them back about six, seven years ago. He's one of the fathers of the modern digital computer, largely because of the work he did between 1937 and 1940, before the U.S. entered the war. He did a lot of work during the war also. But there's really two things that certainly make him significant to the path of electromechanical computing. And the first is in November 1937. He was at home and he was working with a tin can and a couple of relays he had around. And he developed an adder, much like the one described by Shannon. He called it the Model K because he had been working at the kitchen table. It could do very simple binary addition. This is a direct application of Shannon's work and made into the real world less than, I think, a year. This showed that all of the possibilities of the use of electromechanical relays 
as a switching element in computation were there. It was all possible. So he figured, hmm, let's make some more devices. And Bell Labs always wanted to be at the cutting edge, largely because they had to defend the fact that they were a monopoly. So they needed to do research that could be seen as beneficial to the large outside community. They went into a full research program in 1938, and Stibitz was their lead. And in a year, they had produced the complex number computer. Some places also call it the complex number calculator, but I'm 95% sure it was the complex number computer in general use at that point. Now, in November 1939, they put it up, and it was well and truly used a lot. It could do calculations on complex numbers. It could do everything you would want a large-scale calculator to do. have to remember that they're still limited by what they can pull off. So you're not going to see, more or less, you're solving equations that would have application, and particularly from Bell Labs, in business, and scientific computation. But here is a fascinating aspect. In 1940, so while Europe was in the midst of World War II, but the U.S. had not yet entered, Stibitz made a presentation at the American Mathematical Society conference that was held at Dartmouth. So what he did was he had modified a teletype and connected it over telephone wires to the complex number computer in New York. And he sent commands and did a computation. This is the first network computing machine that we know of. And fascinatingly, it went over standard telephone lines. That aspect is difficult to overstate it proved that the use of standard networking, which would become the standard in computing, was possible years before anyone had a general-purpose electronic digital computer to use. Stibitz and Shannon's work was widely known, as was Vannevar Bush's, honestly. But about the same time, there's a fellow named Howard Aiken, and he presented a feasibility study to IBM's chairman, Tom Watson Sr., about making a electromechanical computer. Now, what would become the Automatic Sequence Control Calculator, the ASCC, better known, honestly, as the Harvard Mark I, didn't get launched until 1944, but they were talking about it and making plans as early as the late 30s. And in 19, early 1937, he brought, Aiken brought the plans and concepts to IBM and other groups as well. What's interesting is that he was aware of Babbage's work because Babbage's son had given a demonstration piece of Babbage's engine to Harvard University. So he studied Babbage, particularly the analytical engine. And this is a quote, uh, the machine brought Babbage's principles to the, of the analytical engine almost to full realization and adding a few important features. What's important here is also a cultural aspect. 
And all this is happening at the very middle, well, middle end of World War II, when it's starting to get made. And it's a massive machine. It was 51 feet long, 8 feet high, and hundreds and thousands of gears, 500 miles of wires, 3 million connections, 3,500 multipole relays, and 35,000 contact relays. There were counters, 10-pole switches, and really 72 adding machines with 23 significant digits each. The computational power there was huge for the time. Um, an interesting note, the enclosure for the device was designed by Norman Bell Geddes, one of the most important figures in the history of American design, particularly industrial design. And it cost $50,000, which really pissed off Aiken because he thought it could be better used to actually improve the scientific content. At least that's what Grace Hopper says. And Grace was fairly accurate in most of her stuff. Not everything, but she got there. This computer used paper tape, of course, and you could do it, uh, you could make a program loop by literally taking a paper tape, passing it through, stopping it, then taping the ends together so it would run continuously. But as often happens, a machine that is not necessarily the one that comes forward, because electromechanical machines of this size were not particularly going to light the world on fire, though several were made. But they give experience to people who would become significant down the line. In this case, Richard Block, Robert Campbell, but most importantly... The woman I consider the mother of software, Grace Hopper. This was not the last work that IBM would do in electromechanical computing. They actually did another machine called the Selective Sequence Electronic Calculator, or SSEC, or SEC. Started in late 44, largely because they felt slighted in how it became known as the Harvard Mark I, and Aiken was not the most genteel of collaborators. This is the story, actually. Here it is. Um, so in 1944, August, the Harvard Mark I was presented, but Tom Watson Sr., he didn't like Aiken's press release that gave no credit to IBM for the funding and the engineering effort. So they split. And instead it was Wallace John Eckert from Columbia who came up with the whole design for the new system. And the same guy actually supervised the construction of both the ASEC and the SSEC. And they actually hired people away from the ASEC team to come over, which was then widely known as the Harvard Mark I, uh, to come over to the SSEC to work for IBM making theirs. It was delivered in 1948. Well, at least it was operational. And only ran until 1952. By that point, it was obvious that electronic computing, and particularly electronic digital computing, was going to be the next wave. While all this was going on in the U.S., there's a dude named Konrad Zuse out in Germany. And he designed a machine called the Z1 in 1935, 1936, somewhere in there. And then he built it between 36 and 38. It was a wholly mechanical device. 
and only worked for a few minutes at a time. The issue here was probably the tolerances at the time weren't to the degree that he could actually deploy it for use. So he reconfigured his thinking. And the next design he came up with used relays. Now he got funding. Like one of the key things in the history of computing is if you are doing cutting edge work, you have to have an external funder or you have to be rich on your own. Charles Babbage had external funders, but he annoyed them so much they ended up floating off, including the crown. <laughs> Go figure. Howard Aiken had external funders, but he annoyed them and you see where that went. <laughs> so a fellow by the name of Kurt Panke, uh, he did small mechanical calculators, apparently. And the Z2, Zusa 2, was presented in 1940. So in, during World War II, at the German Laboratory for Aviation. And oddly enough, Z2 was not also not particularly reliable. But during that demonstration, it actually worked and everything went well. He came up with the Z3 in 1941. And he showed it to a whole bunch of more, more folks, which allowed him to become one of the more important figures in the history of computing. And underknown, he would eventually found a company, Zusa Computing, or Zusa Computing Verilog or something like that. I can never remember the exact words, but Zusa was the big thing. And they would make many machines going through, I think, the 1960s and 70s even. And electronic computers, they were very, very powerful at. One of the important aspects here is how computing influenced the world at large. Because going into World War II, everyone knew that computation was going to be massively important. And the U.S. really led the race into who could deploy the most scientific and mathematical devices to actually speed up the process of doing things like calculating firing tables, figuring out how to speed up logistics and delivery. There are a lot of different areas in which computation was massively important, and if you could do it faster, you could actually end up improving your odds of winning. Because U.S. and the Allies didn't just win because we had better soldiers or better munitions. We solved it because we could do things faster, things that required complex calculations. We had better science, though their scientists were pretty good, as Operation Paperclip would later attest. The next episode, we're going to look at World War II itself. And I'm going to do a Patreon-exclusive a very brief piece about Derek Lamer and number sieves and some really fascinating work that he did and how they work to a degree. <laughs> so I hope you'll stay tuned. This has been Computer History with Chris Garcia. <laughs> <laughs>